back to the Deeper Dive podcast produced locally in the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. Here at Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church in the Plate of Maryland, my name is Bill Winnell. Flying solo today is uh, Father Larry's away and Father Scott's uh, elsewhere. Um, happy to have Kimberly Cook on to discuss her book today. This is a long time coming. Uh, code kind of ruined it the first time and a couple other glitches here and there. But a little bit, little bit about Kimberly. She's a writer and host of the popular podcast, The Dignity of Women. Her marriage workbook earned the Catholic Writers Guild seal of approval. Kimberly holds a degree, an MA in systematic theology and runs KimberlyCook.me, challenging modern feminism. She lives in Virginia with her husband and their children, and she joins us today. Welcome, Kimberly. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Great. So uh, your book, Motherhood Redeemed, How Radical Feminism Betrayed Maternal Love. Before we kind of get into that, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of your background and how it came to be that you decided to write this book. Sure. So I was raised as a cradle Catholic and as many other people that I've spoken to um, have said the same kind of thing, the same kind of story, but raised in a Catholic kind of a name only household. Um, We did go to mass every Sunday and we did say grace before meals, but it was very much just routine and something that, you know, my parents were taught by their parents and there was no deeper meaning, or at least the deeper meaning had been lost throughout the generations. And so for us, it was more just ritual or what you should do. And, um, So, you know, I grew up like that and began making the early sacraments, but then by the time I got into middle school, I really started to question, my brother and I started to question my parents on a lot of things, like many teens and preteens do, you know, why do we have to go to mass every Sunday? What's the point of all this stuff? Why are we sitting and standing and kneeling and, you know, crossing ourselves and, you know, this stuff just seems ridiculous and Um, I went to public school and all of my friends were Protestant or just had no faith whatsoever, you know, were raised in agnostic or even atheist households. So I was getting a lot of it from them, a lot of the questions from them, and I couldn't defend, you know, why we did these certain things. So then asking my parents, and they also couldn't really defend why we were doing these things, you know, it was just, okay, well, this is what we do. We're Catholic, you know, or, or this is what our parents did. And this is just how you do it. And, um, that really wasn't enough for me. Uh, I really needed answers. I really needed to know why. And so as I started pressing more and more into my parents through the years, um, as I started to get towards high school, it came to the point where I was really starting to, to reject the faith in my heart. And, um, and I really started to agree with a lot of my friends that, Catholicism was just this ritualistic nonsense that we did, and there was no reason for, you know, the baptismal uh, cross when you come in the door of the church, and it seemed um, very much like superstition to me, and um, and I didn't understand why Catholicism had so many problems with all these pagan rituals, but yet it seemed like they were embracing some on the other hand, so Anyway, uh, that kind of devolved, and as I got into high school, I became a lot more rebellious, and it wasn't okay for my parents to just say, just do it, and just wake up and on Sundays and just, you know, get in the pew and, and be quiet, and 
that kind of thing, it became a real rebellion where it's like, I'm not going to do this anymore because I don't believe in this and I'm becoming an adult and I can make my own choices. And so anyway, um, eventually my parents kind of gave up that fight and said, we're not going to fight with you every Sunday. We're not going to keep on forcing you to do these things. And the roots of their faith weren't necessarily strong enough in the church that they felt that it was really worth fighting for and, you know, losing so much of a relationship slide between us for this. So um, there just seemed to be a lot more peace when they just let my brother and I not go to mass anymore and not, you know, call ourselves Catholic anymore or whatever. We were, you know, free souls to search for the truth. And, um, and in doing so, my parents also stopped going to mass as well. They were kind of like, well, if we're not going as a family, then really what's the point of just the two of us going. So, so unfortunately that rebellion really caused my whole family to fall away from the church. So that's kind of the early evolution of what happened. Um, and then as you read in the book, uh, you know, as many people have encountered I finally had enough seeds planted along the way and the other side of things, you know, the Catholic side of things, and eventually met somebody who was able to answer all those questions with the right answers um, and to really defend the church. And uh, that, to me, was a shifting point where the light came on and all the things, all those rituals, all those prayers, all those uh you know, sacramentals that I had known kind of in this vague way growing up became real and concrete and they made sense and they weren't abstract anymore. And it became something that I would later embrace. And so that turned me back towards my faith and wound up going um, to Franciscan University and, uh, and going on to get my master's degree after that. And to really try to share that faith with others. But along the way in um, my high school years, I really fell into the feminist cult, I guess you could say. And um, I was in a band, you know, all girl punk band. And um, so Kimberly, real quick, what, 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 what period of time we talk about in high school with, uh, for you? What, when were you in high school? Yeah, so this was um, probably about my 10th grade year, and this is like in the late 90s. Okay. So, um, so in my 10th grade year, I, you know, began to meet other feminist girls in, um, in my high school, and we wound up forming this band, and it was very much like this prop feminist propaganda, really, and um, set to music. <laughs> and so that you know, to me, it was a great thing at the time because it felt so liberating. You know, I was part, part of this um, feminist movement and it felt like this great liberation. I, you know, had this great freedom as a female and there was this voice, this collective voice that I was part of uh, that had rung out throughout history of all these females that, you know, had been kept down and repressed and, and all of that. So I felt like I was part of this great uprising and, and there was definitely a sense in my soul of needing a community. You know, I didn't have the faith anymore. I didn't really feel like I was connected to a community and we were all really called to that. 
So for me, I found it in the wrong place. And, and that's kind of where I uh, took root, you know, the, the feminist ideology really took root in me for many years. And, and yeah, we can go into that, but bred all kinds of anger and bitterness and all of that kind of stuff. So in, in, so it's your, in, in this time we're talking about in high school, you essentially had left the faith. Was there, was religion, was organized religion? Were you still seeking any other type of religion or was no religion whatsoever? So I would say there was definitely a period of time where I really wasn't seeking anything. Um, you know, I was open. I would say I've always been very interested in religion and, um, or spirituality or whatever, you know, during that time I wanted to pretty much learn about everything. And I was fascinated by all the different forms of faith. And, and, you know, even I had a number of friends that were getting into Wiccan, um, you know, practices and things like that. And to me, I thought, wow, there's just so many things out there. There can't really be one truth. You know, I think it's just kind of scattered across all these different things and everyone should just kind of embrace, you know, relativism. Everyone should embrace what's best for them and what works for them and, and what gives them this inner peace. Um, and so I kind of read about everything, learned about everything and had an open ear towards absolutely every practice and every, you know, strand of faith or religion but I wasn't really embracing any of them for quite a few years. And then eventually I would say after high school, I started to seek a little bit deeper. I thought uh, I heard a previous interview interview with you where you, you talk about your then atheist boyfriend and how he actually put you in contact with a Catholic who you had discussions with mm -hmm. about the faith. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I had been dating a guy in high school who was atheist or, and, um, you know, he didn't embrace any kind of faith and religion was just not even really a, something that he was interested in. And the funny thing is that he was a really great guy and it seemed like, um, I mean, he really just had good innate morals, probably better than I did at the time. And I had been raised Catholic, you know, but I was in this, this rebellion phase that I was actively going against all of those things that I had been taught. Uh, whereas he didn't really have anything to prove or anything to go against. And so I thought, wow, here's this guy who's never been baptized, never been catechized, really hasn't been taught anything, but he's just a really good person. And, you know, a great individual that would never steal or lie or, you know, do anything and really, um, has all this virtue that's just natural to him. So that was another thing that kind of put me in awe. How can this person without any baptismal graces or any roots of the faith, um, be so good, you know? And, but anyway, he would be the one to kind of ultimately lead me to the person who would revert me back to the faith. And, um, how that happened was he was a graphic designer and he got a job at a Catholic firm. It was an Italian family that owned this graphic design firm. And 
he, my boyfriend at the time got a job there and the, um, president of that company, you know, him and his sons worked there and he was always speaking about the faith. He was, you know, very deeply rooted and very charismatic and, um, just a joy, very, very joyful person. And he would just speak about God all the time, just in this, um, seemed completely normal way. And my boyfriend knew that I was seeking and I was always talking to different people about faith. And I was so interested and engaged in people telling me about their faith journeys or about what they believed in. And, uh, he said, you know, you have to meet my boss. You'd really like him. And he's always talking about the faith and he always has a story to tell. And, He's full of all these miracles that have happened. And I said, okay, yeah, that sounds really interesting. He sounds great. So what religion is he? Because I was kind of collecting all these religions. Like I've talked to this kind of person. I've talked to this kind of person. And, and you know, it was like, ooh, I wonder what, what else I can discover, what new faith I can find. And he said, well, he's Catholic. And I was like, oh, it just kind of fell flat. Like I've already been there. I've already done that. I've already rejected that one you know there's nothing else there for me and he just insisted like I know but I just really think you would like him and and you know he seems like he has just answers for everything and I said okay and really when I agreed to meet him it was a very like uh almost like cocky kind of a feeling because I thought I was gonna go and educate him on the faith. Like I thought, wow, this guy must be so naive. He's probably a really great guy and very, you know, full of the Holy Spirit or whatever. But once I start questioning him, his faith will wither probably, or he'll cave under those same questions and be like, oh, I don't know why we do that. I don't know what all these things mean. Maybe this is an empty religion. Um, but to my surprise, when I went in there thinking that I would tell him what was up, um, it wound up going in the very opposite direction for me. And, and thanks be to God it did because I started kind of peppering him with questions. And first of all, I should say that he was so joyful. And when he encountered me, even though I looked very much like this punk rock, chick you know that was a little bit scary and everything and probably angry and um he just embraced me and had this outpouring of love that I hadn't really encountered from many adults in my life during that period of time that period of rebellion I wasn't used to people just trusting me or loving me or just embracing me um for who I was and how I looked and in my attitude and everything else like that. Um, I mean, usually it was quite the opposite. So, so that kind of took me off my guard to say at first. And then, um, as he started sharing things with me about the faith and I started peppering him with all of these questions, he just calmly and peacefully was able to answer absolutely every single one. He didn't have to scramble. He wasn't as I thought he would be off guard and, and floundering to figure out a way to appease me or try to sell this religion to me. It was like he deeply knew and understood and believed everything that he was talking about and everything that he said made sense. You know, why do we, um, 
cross ourselves with holy water when we come into the church, a renewal of our baptism and our baptismal promises. And I was like, wow. So it's not just like this superstitious splashing of water in the same way that like don't go under a ladder because you'll have seven years of bad luck. Like if you don't cross yourself with holy water, you might have seven years of bad luck or get run over by a car when you leave the church or, you know, whatever. To me, I saw it as superstitious, but, um, and nobody could tell me otherwise. But for the first time, he was able to tell me the deeper meaning of all these things. And it was a lot to take in because everything meant something and everything meant something very deep. And it took, I mean, when I was there, I just started bawling and which was very unusual for me because I had so many walls up. I was so such a guarded person and I had become such a mean uh, person. And um, so crying in front of other people was not really something that I did. And to just start weeping in front of this person. I didn't really know why it was just like, uh, everything that I had been fighting against just came crashing down at that point in time. And there was this tenderness that came into my heart, you know, truly the Lord touching my heart at that time in that moment. And all of these realizations in my head that this actually made sense. And so that moment was is just hard to put into words what happened in one single night, you know, encountering one faithful, knowledgeable person and the ability for the Holy Spirit to work through that person at the same time, there was just no going back from that moment. So you're playing a guitar in a, in a punk rock band. How'd you end up at Franciscan? So, um, as I said, through the years of being in the band, um, there was a lot of darkness and you don't have to, you know, come back to the faith or have some kind of awakening to realize how destructive that lifestyle is. So even before that moment, there was definitely this reality that this isn't what I thought it would be, you know, when we were all dreaming of being rock stars and everything else like that. And then as people are um, starting to have drug overdoses. And, and, and let me and interrupt like, you. you. You're, you're in a, you're legit, you're touring. You're, you're doing shows all over the country, right? right. So this is, this is like a, a, this is your living. Yes. At the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, we, this was what we had planned for our future. You know, we were releasing CDs and we were playing shows and we were on tour and this was, you know, ultimately we saw ourselves as rock stars. Like this is how we want to live the rest of our lives. And, um, a few years into that, you realize pretty quickly that it's not what you thought it was going to be. And, um, and there's a lot of, sadness. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of, like I said, you know, you have suicides and ODs and people with addictions and people in and out of rehab and even other people that you meet because you're surrounded by other bands and other uh, people that are in the same lifestyle as you. And you start to question pretty early on if this is really what you want to do, you know, is this really all there is? You thought this was the big finale for your life. This was going to be the greatest thing. And then you start to question if 
there's anything else after this, you know, this, it, there's definitely points in time where you realize this is kind of a miserable existence and there are highs too. You know, there's a lot, it's a lot of fun and um, there's a lot of energy and being out there on stage and, and playing in a band and connecting with other musicians. Um, there's definitely something beautiful about that. And I think that is what keeps people in that, you know, but, um, but the kind of music that we were playing and the kind of crowds that we were in front of and, there was just a lot of darkness and anger. And, um, and so I had been wavering on that um, and kind of wondering what I was going to do with my future. And, and I had definitely started to think that maybe it wasn't going to involve being in a band anymore. So that was already starting to manifest. And then when I, um, became friends with Charles, the man that I was telling you about. And when he, he basically kind of became like a, a spiritual father in a way. And, um, and I started to ask him, you know, what I should do with my future and, and where I should go from here. Cause I was kind of feeling like I was at a dead end and he, all three of his sons had gone to Franciscan university and he had seen, you know, the great work that came out of the school, the, the amazing changes that had come through his own children and other people that had gone through the school. He also knew, uh, father Michael Scanlon, the, you know, founder of the university. And so he really believed in the mission there. And he said, you have to go to Steubenville. And to me, that sounded like you have to go to Mars. <laughs> That's like the most foreign thing. Um, I went to public school my whole life and, you know, I didn't have any Catholic friends and I was just navigating this whole new road in the wilderness, which everyone thought I was crazy. Like going from this liberal feminism to embracing the most uh, patriarchal, um, you know, religion out there. And it just seemed so ridiculous to most of my friends and kind of like a phase, you know, you're just, you'll find out what they're all about and you'll find out that women can't do anything in, in that church and, and that it goes against everything that you believe in and that you've been fighting for. And, um, and you'll, you know, you're just confused kind of a thing is I think how most of my friends took it. Um, but yeah, so when he said, go to Steubenville, it sounded crazy. And I, um, I don't know if you want me to tell from there <laughs> what happened. How, well, how about, there. yeah, some experiences at Steubenville for sure. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I just had this incredible moment where, um, I was, I was thinking about his words and thinking about Steubenville and here it is. It's this Catholic, college on a hill in the middle of nowhere in Ohio um, run by these Franciscan brothers and, and priests. And I was thinking, okay, um, I might as well just go to a convent, you know? And then I went to, I started praying about it. Okay. If the Lord would open my heart and, and, you know, tell me where I'm supposed to be. And I especially felt this connection with Mary, because again, um, coming from this feminist background where there's all this 
these strong women and just feeling this gravitational pull towards strong women. And of course, Mary certainly doesn't seem to the feminist like a strong woman. But I mean, I saw her as um, very prominent in the Catholic Church, even not knowing much about Catholicism at the time. She was everywhere you went into any Catholic church it was this statue of Mary and there were always flowers put around her and there was always people kneeling and praying and she held the Christ child. You know, it seemed like if anybody had power in the church, it seemed like she did, you know, and um, despite what all the feminists said, it seemed like she was a very prominent woman and, and very revered in the church. So I felt this connection to asking for her prayers and her intercession pretty early on. And that's what I did. So, um, so I was praying and asking for her to kind of guide me and tell me what to do, tell me what her son wanted for my life, for my future, that I was just kind of lost, a lost soul. And I needed direction and, um, and here Charles was telling me, go to Franciscan, but how do I know that I'm supposed to do that? That just seems crazy. And so, um, I was kneeling down to pray in our church. Um, and I was in front of the statue of the blessed mother and I asked, you know, what I should do. And I was kind of starting to tears are trickling down my face. I'm feeling really overwhelmed and it was an empty church. And, um, all of a sudden I hear a voice like very clearly. And it said, let me lift you up. And I just remember that moment turning around really quickly to see if who was there, you know, thinking like, and maybe some old lady came in to pray and saw me kneeling there weeping or something and felt sorry for me or something. And church was still empty. And so then I'm thinking like, now I'm going crazy, you know, because I'm hearing voices or I'm hearing a statue talking to me or, you know, this can't be right. And so, um, but anyway, it, there was like, there was a piece. So I just sat there with it and I thought, okay, yes, you know, um, I do want you to lift me up, but what does that mean? <laughs> you know, like, sorry to be frustrated if, if the blessed mother's throwing me a bone here and, and telling me something. Um, I want to be thankful for that. But on the other hand, what does that mean? You know, like, how will I know it still doesn't mean anything else than, than what I came in with. So I just kind of held on to that and I decided, okay, I'm going to go to Steubenville and see what it's all about and just pray that by the grace of God, that I'm going to know when I get there, if I'm supposed to be there or not. And that, I mean, I, I need that kind of confirmation. So I went with my parents and they thought it was equally as crazy. Of course, I didn't tell them anything like, well, I heard a statue talking to me. And um, so I think I'm supposed to go here because they were, were not at a place to be able to comprehend that at the time, you know, <laughs> and they would have been like, wow, we need to drop you off somewhere else, you know? And, um, but we went just because I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking at colleges and, and this is one of the ones that I want to check out. And 
again, they thought from the very start that the whole thing was ridiculous. And as we got there, they were like, wow, this is like a high school, you know, this is a terrible town. Um, where is the pool on campus? Where's the, like, they were looking for the kind of Ivy league <laughs> campus type things. And they were like, we don't have a pool and the gym or the, you know, workout room had like two or three machines. And it was like all those things that are like superficial that you're kind of looking for when you're touring a college. Um, we certainly weren't looking at the spiritual aspect at the time. So, um, so we were just looking at those superficial things like, wow, the dorms, like some of them don't even have air conditioning. What's going on here. And, um, and meanwhile, the whole time in my heart, I'm just praying, okay, give me a sign, give me a sign, give me a sign. And I kept on thinking like, okay, it's going to be here. It's going to be there. And never like, you know, it just never came. We went to noon mass on campus and I thought, yes, it'll definitely be in the gospel. And it wasn't, it'll definitely be in the homily. And it wasn't. And I just, I didn't feel moved. And it was the end of our tour. It was the end of the day. And I, I felt really deflated, I guess, because I was hoping there would be something, um, you know, a really clear yes or no, but there was just nothing. And then um, the girl doing the tour said, have you checked out our Port Siuncula chapel? It's this little replica of St. Francis's chapel. So we went there and she said, you should kneel and pray for a little while. There's perpetual adoration. I thought for sure, this obviously is going to be where, where I, the Lord's going to speak to me. So we knelt and prayed for a while. Again, nothing came in prayer. And my parents said, okay, you know, uh, I think we've seen enough here. This experiment's like, uh, over. We're going to go to the car. And I just, again, started to feel like that despair creep in that, wow, I really thought maybe something would happen here. Maybe this was the place I was supposed to go. Maybe there was some hope, um, but but there's nothing. So, um, so I left the little chapel and I went around to the back to go up to the parking lot. And when I did, there was a gigantic grotto with um, the blessed mother statue up in the top of the grotto and her hands were lifted up towards the sky. And again, I heard that same voice that said, here is where I will lift you up. And I just, you know, it was a combination of, of tears and extreme joy because I didn't know what I was going to find there. I didn't know what was going to happen there for me. I didn't even know what major to pick at the time, but I knew where I was supposed to be and I knew how to get out of the lifestyle that I was in. And I knew that this was my way to get away from the friend group that I had made all of the kind of past to get far away from that, both physically, but also spiritually, you know, to grow and to get away from that. And I knew that this would kind of be like climbing the mountain to, you know, discover that transfiguration for myself and find a new life. And so, yeah, I went into the car and my parents said, okay, so we can rule this place out. Right. <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm going here. I'm going to sign up for the fall semester. And they said, what, why? And I just, again, I didn't tell them that I'm hearing voices, but I just said, I just know that I'm, I'm supposed to go here. So. All right. So fast forward to the book. Why the book in the first place? Yeah. So um, obviously there was, there were many years of healing and return to the church, return to the faith. And 
Um, I knew that along that journey, I knew that God was constantly calling me to have that same St. Paul ministry in a way, you know, St. Paul was going hundred miles an hour in the wrong direction. God kind of like gives him that brick wall moment and turns him around. And of course, Paul, it's just his personality. Then he's going a hundred miles an hour in the other direction for the Lord, you know, and I felt like that was kind of what the Lord wanted. I always had this great momentum and I was drawn towards like helping women. I had this heart for women and, um, and I felt like I was doing that in the wrong way. And when I had that moment of transformation, I felt like the Lord was constantly calling me to have that, um, Pauline ministry towards women, to help women, to lift women up, to, you know, embrace the pro-life ministry to help women through crisis pregnancy, to help um, women that were in that same kind of downward slide that I was in relativism and feminism and all of that. And one of the ways that was clear um, after doing a lot of ministry work was that I needed to write this down, you know, the same kind of thing as like the, the scripture, the idea is that you need to have something that can outlive you and something that can also reach a wider audience than you can reach just by the people that you meet. And so I prayed about that and the opportunity just came so naturally. It, you know, it just kind of fell into place and was very much just God's work. And I knew that it was time, you know, I talked to Tan books and, um, everything just fell into place perfectly with the timing. And the funny thing is, is when the book was actually released, it was a hundred years from Susan B. Anthony's work on, you know, so long ago on getting women the right to vote and, um, and all of, all of that beautiful work that I talked about from the original uh, female advocates of what they call the first wave, you know? So so that was unplanned by me, but God obviously saw that many years before I did and how, you, how amazing that would be. How would, the, how would the women of the first wave see feminism today? Yeah, well, I mean, that is kind of a loaded question because first of all, when we look at feminism today, I think that we automatically think pro-choice and everything surrounding that um, contraceptive and freedom for women is voluntary motherhood. That is what feminism really blankets as its root cause nowadays is that having the ability to have children if and when we want them and on whatever terms we want them because we need to have freedom from our biology, which, you know, um, is nowadays we can't even necessarily say what a woman is. So, you know, <laughs> it's messy, but I can, I, I can definitely say that the, those women, um, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, many others, who began fighting for women's rights and um, women to have freedom. It certainly wasn't that. And they were very much pro-life and, um, and a lot of what they fought for could be looked at as 
rights for women to keep their children, to raise their children, to have their children in safety, to be able to get out of poverty so that they could um, have healthy children and not look towards abortion or other means because of their poverty or their situation. So, um, so in that sense, I think that they would, the feminism of today would be completely unrecognizable to them. Um, it's not really a stretch. Is it, is it, yeah. is it a stretch to say that the feminist movement in the 20th century was essentially hijacked? Well, I mean, the, one thing that you also have to look at with some of the the early um, women's advocate, advocates of the 19th century is that some of them also did not embrace any sort of a faith. You know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote her own Bible, which was the women's Bible. So when I look at some of that that was going on in the 19th century by some of those women, there's certainly something that I think the modern day feminists could find themselves in. Um, and I think they could say, when we read the women's Bible, again, it talks about the patriarchy of men and how, you know, women don't have a place in any sort of Christianity. And so we shouldn't be in Christianity unless we kind of make it our own. And again, rewrite the Bible in our own terms. So I don't think that it was, com you could say that it was completely hijacked and, and these were all good, you know, God-fearing church ladies who were, you know, the rug was completely pulled out from under them by these radicals. I definitely think there was this evolution into what we see now, which is far more radical than what they had set up. But I do think some of them certainly paved the path for the road that it took. And, and I think there was other ones that would, I would say, pave the path for um, people like the Susan B. Anthony list, you know, and uh, pro-life advocates and, and the founders of the March for Life. And so there was a real split at the turn of the century between the different um, groups of women, women's rights advocates. And you saw a one group that took a more... Um, radical approach and then another group that didn't want to take that radical approach and they were embracing more of Christian values intertwined with um, getting that freedom and getting those rights under the umbrella of faith. And so so there I think that we can still see from early on how those two roads continued on throughout history into today. One of the things you talk about in your book is uh, the division of self, um, mother slash worker. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And I think, um, well, what we have with especially the turn of the century, you had Susan B. Anthony speaking to women and starting this um, working women's movement, trying to get women into the work force and trying to open up those opportunities to women and to get society kind of used to the idea, or at least starting to see that as something that was going to happen, whether they wanted it or not. 
And when she spoke to the women, one thing that's always stuck out to me is she said, let the, your bosses see you as workers, not as women. And I understand where she was coming from at the time because they were seeing women as not as capable as men to do any number of tasks, um, not only just tasks that required brawn or strength, but even just required intelligence. They, you know, there was this idea across the board in society that women were not as capable at any job out there. And so I understand what she was trying to say to these women, but on the other hand, you know, this is so contrary to what John Paul II and Edith Stein teach in this, in the way that we as women are inseparable from um, worker, woman, mother, daughter, uh, you know, whatever we choose, student, we can't separate who we are. And by virtue of the fact that we are women and our femininity brings something to each of those areas that masculinity can't bring to those areas. You know, that is why the Lord made us male and female. There is a need for those two compatible parts and, um, and they can enter into all these different social areas, but there's going to be different gifts that are going to be needed and brought. And so what, the feminist movement, especially in modern day, tries to tell us is that you can't do both. Like you can't um, be a mother specifically and fulfill your dreams. You can't uh, get that degree if you're a mother. You can't get that job. You're not going to um, seek the ambition that you had. And anybody that you talk to that actually encountered a crisis pregnancy and went face to face with a Planned Parenthood worker or something like that, they're going to tell you that that was the script that was read to them. Oh, what do you plan to do? Oh, you want to get a, a job, you know, in this field, or you were planning on getting an education at this university, or you wanted to travel well, guess what? That's not going to happen for you if you have this child because motherhood strips you of every joy, every ambition that you had. And so I think that's the idea is that there is this division having to divide ourselves like, wow, well, I really want to be a mother, but I also really wanted to do this. And it's this feeling in society that we can't do that. Either you're a mother that stays home in the house and just has kids, and that's the only thing you ever do, or you do all these great and glorious things, and there's no crossover. So, and I mean, I even see it with my own young children. Sometimes they get confused with things, and they'll say, well, I can't be a dad, or I can't be a mom, because I want to be a police officer, or I want to be an army guy, or I want to be, so I'm they have it in their mind that it's picking a vocation and that those don't cross over, you know? So, so I think that is the lie um, that we have been told and that the feminist movement now continues to work on. And especially in Planned Parenthood that there is this division of self. You can't have it both ways. You can't be a mother and get a degree. You can't be a mother and 
do those things that you wanted to do in life or those ambitions or, or be successful or you will never travel or you will never be happy. Um, and if a woman's single, you know, what guy is going to marry you now, you know, you'll never have that happy home. If this child's in the picture, all those lies. Is there, so what is a Catholic feminist? Is there, is there, so I use the term hijack again, because I think in some respects, um, they, many was, will say there's no, no, no room for feminism as it is out there known in the Catholic church for, for, for a practicing Catholic woman. What does a Catholic feminist look like? Right. Yeah. I really struggle with using the term feminism for a Catholic. And a lot of that comes from just what feminism is and how just historically looking at how the term was coined when it was coined, you know, at the turn of the century, we brought in these women um, to the movement that Margaret Sanger and Simone de Beauvoir and these women are the ones that really started to coin a term. And, and there was a thought process that came into this to say, here we have this movement. It's kind of going in all these different directions. Everyone's taking their own road and we need some kind of term that brings us together and some kind of guidelines of who we are and what we believe in. We really need a philosophy of what we're doing here, or we're just going to fall apart and nothing more is going to get done. Okay. We got the right to vote, but that's going to be where it ends. And so we need, we have this momentum. We need to get a philosophy behind it. And that's when they really coined the term feminism and Simone de Beauvoir had a lot to do. French philosopher had a lot to do with building up the ideology of feminism early on. And a lot of her views are so radical that we would recognize them today, even though this was in the late forties, we would recognize them today in the sense that a woman is not a woman unless she feels that she is a woman. I mean, this was like in, in 49 that she was writing this. Well, this is something that doesn't maybe phase us today because we hear so many of these crazy things out there. But at that time, you wouldn't think that someone was writing this or building this up. And um, and so when we talked about feminism, even at that time, it was this idea of voluntary motherhood and this idea that, you know, the baby doesn't have a soul and, and probably none of us really have souls. So this idea of abortion being wrong is something that was created by the Catholic Church, which is what um, Simone de Beauvoir really believed, that this was a creation. This idea of a soul was something that the Catholic Church came up with to make people feel guilty about aborting or suicide or, you know, whatever else you decided to do with your own body. And, um, and still today we see very much in feminism is that they're healing this idea of doing whatever you want with your body, creating whatever you want of your body, calling it whatever you want and using whatever terms are good for you and imposing that on others. And that started really when, when they had this idea of what feminism was going to be and what it was going to look like and what it was going to be built upon. 
So when I look at that term feminism, and even though they try to draw in the people from before that term was created, and maybe some of them could be seen to be a part of that ideology as well, like I said before, but I really have a problem using that term because it says too much of what we're not as Catholics. And really it it goes against who we are as Catholics in so many ways. So I always like to use the term um, women's rights advocate or something like that. And I mean, you can really, the Susan B. Anthony list does that. Uh, Everyone who is is pro-life is a women's rights advocate or or an advocate for women um, because they're advocating for their voice and their child and their rights, you know, to to keep this child and to raise this child out of poverty in safety and, um, you know, in a way that they can live a full life and not make those uh, threats of Planned Parenthood and the pro-choice movement come to pass. When you, obviously, when you wrote the book, Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, so to speak. Um, could you have imagined just a couple of years ago when you wrote your book that uh, we'd be where we are now as far as Roe v. Wade? Honestly, I didn't imagine Roe v. Wade ever being overturned, at least in my lifetime, especially when you look at the pulse of the social climate. And it constantly seemed like there's more negative than there is positive. It's almost like one step forward, two steps back. So there's always this hope, but the idea, not only that I'd see it in my lifetime, but so soon, I never would have imagined at the time. I mean, I, as many pro-life authors, I think there was just this hope that if you could just reach some people that read your book, read your work, if it can just change some people's minds um, so that there's more people fighting the good fight, that would be a win. And the idea that the whole entire country would be seeing this radical shift to right this wrong that was done so many years ago when all of these radical feminists were rampant, you know, and, and they were really ruling the media of that time and especially magazines and newspapers and Gloria Steinem and Miss Magazine. And um, to think that relatively shortly after that, as history goes, we were able to right that wrong is just a beautiful thing to celebrate. Well, the book is called Motherhood Redeemed, How Radical Feminism Betrayed Maternal Love. It, it reads uh, uh, partly like uh, partly autobiography, like an autobiography. It certainly reads uh, in some cases like a history book. Highly recommend the book. It, it, it goes, you, you go into detail in a very easy to understand way history of the the early movements um in the in the organizations that were created from these movements kind of the history all the way up through the 20th century and um it was, it was a pleasure to read and great to have you on thank you so much i really appreciate it no problem thanks for joining us